Hey, Bankless Nation. I put out a tweet last week that said this, who can come on Bankless and explain the modern financial surveillance apparatus? FATF, FinCEN, AMLKYC, OFAC, The Blacklist, The Graylist. How does it all work? Who makes the rules? Been in the space for years. I still don't understand these dark corners. It's very much how I felt coming to this episode, needing the financial surveillance 101. I knew it was an octopus, knew it was this uh, multi-headed hydra, I had no idea how deep its roots actually go. And today we unpack this with legal experts. Seth Hurtline, from, uh, he's the VP of Global Policy at Ledger, and also Michael Mosier. He actually has spent some time in the belly of the beast at both Finson and OFAC. Right. Now he's on our he's team. He's the guy inside the house. Yeah, and now he's on Team Crypto. So he's got some uh, insider baseball that uh, he's gonna gonna tell us as we make sense of this. This was a, a really fantastic episode. I know I wanna get your comments on this episode, but before we do, we got a message from our friends and sponsors over at Ave. David, what does Ave want Bankless listeners to know? Ave wants you to know that Ave V3 is here. And I mean, it's been here, it's been here for six months. Uh, so why does Ave want you to know that V3 is here? Well, cause apparently over a billion dollars of capital doesn't know that because it's still in Aave V2. Not only that, but there is a button for migrating your capital to Aave V3. So Aave, if you are an Aave V2 enjoyer, which you are free to because it is permissionless open source technology, they still want you. Everything gets better if all of the liquidity goes to the same place. So uh, if you are using Aave, but you are using Aave, an old version of Aave, uh, perhaps consider joining the rest of the, of the crew in Aave V3. It has more liquidity than Aave V2, uh, but also some extra features as well. So par, uh, as, asset isolation mode and to compartmentalize your risks. It's got some gas optimizations. It's got some extra bells and whistles. It's just a better version of Aave. Uh, App.Aave.com. Uh, but then also there is Aave Grants. If you are a builder building on Aave, especially their brand new stablecoin, Go, uh, there are grants available to you. So overall, there's a bunch of things to do in the Aave ecosystem, and there's a link in the show notes to get started with all of them. Yeah, my favorite, I, th I would say, both of our favorites, lending and borrowing protocol in crypto. They've been around since the very beginning. Obviously, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. David, I know this episode was was my idea. It's kind of like geeky, wonkish stuff, but yeah. I felt like it was, it was so important, especially on the back of uh, developers getting rested in Tornado mm -hmm. Cash. Like, um, what is going on? I, I, I just realized one day, I don't even understand right. all, what, what all of these institutions are and what gives the financial uh, surveillance system their apparatus. So what did you think of this episode? Yeah, I, I definitely would categorize this one as a Ryan episode. I was definitely in, in listening mode for the majority of uh, this podcast. And I mean, I guess, I guess that's what it's like to be a listener. You're in listening mode. So I guess telling listeners to enter listening mode, I guess doesn't, <laughs> doesn't help them. Um, I, I learned a lot. It felt like story, story time, a little bit about American history. One of these episodes that, uh, that we frequently do on Bankless every now and then about just like, hey, how did just the state of laws come to be in the way that they are? And how are they downstream from the original American values that this country was founded on? And what about the current settling of the dust around this new player in the world of, in this universe called cryptography? How is that disturbing the equilibrium and how do we need to extend American values uh, into this new world? Because if we don't do that, then non-American values will take over. I think that's kind of the, the through line that I would, uh, that will, it will anchor bankless listeners is that there's this new field and territory. We can have freedom enter and establish itself legally or we can have authoritarian entrance enter in that same field. And I mean, I think everyone knows which side that we want to win. Um, we need to actually fight for that 
And fighting for that starts with understanding. Uh, and so I think that's why I enjoyed this episode. It, it helps tell that story. Yeah. And anytime David says American values, if you're outside the U.S. and you're like American values, just, just think of um, liberal values, like lowercase yeah. l values, yeah. right? Uh, civil liberties, um, you know, freedoms of, of citizens to, to express themselves and, and to transact without the surveillance of the government. That's really what we're talking here. And that's what's at stake. More than anything, I think this episode impressed upon me that unchecked, this is just um, an mm. octopus. This is just yep. like a, a tree structure uh-huh. that will, um, I don't know. It's, ca- a, ca- it's a not, not an octopus, um, slime mold. It will, slime mold. It yeah, will yeah. grow. Exactly. And yeah. and it is growing and it has mm-hmm. grown since like the 1970s. Anyway, mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic episode. Guys, stay tuned for this. But before we do, we want to tell you about our friends over at Kraken, which is our number one recommended exchange. Go check them out. Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming, and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. Arbitrum is accelerating the Web3 landscape with a suite of secure Ethereum scaling solutions. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1 with flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. Arbitrum Nova is quickly becoming a Web3 gaming hub and social dApps like Reddit are also calling Arbitrum home. And now Arbitrum Orbit allows you to use Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own layer three, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you are a developer, enterprise, or user, Arbitrum Orbit lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. Faster transaction speeds and significantly lower gas fees. So visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first app with Arbitrum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to host two legal minds on our show today. Seth Hurtline is the Vice President and Global Head of Policy at Ledger, and Michael Moser, he's the co-founder of a legal boutique called Arcturos, and he is also building ex-ante. Um, he's formerly been at FinCEN and the Treasury, Chief Technical Counsel at Chainalysis, so he's th- seen a thing or two in the space. Uh, welcome, Michael. Thanks. All right, guys. Uh, so what we're going to attempt to do on today's episode is 
give kind of the everyman explanation of financial surveillance. I feel like this is an episode, um, maybe for me, <laughs> it's, it's a kind of a selfish episode because I feel like here I am in crypto and I've heard all of these you know, four or five letter agencies uh, and it's recently started to impact my life with like Tornado Cash. I'm not entirely sure what these agencies are. I'm not entirely sure what's legal and what's not. I'm not entirely sure what powers each of these agencies actually have over my financial life. And I'm looking for like the 101. I'm looking for like the the explainer. When we call, talk about FATF uh, and we're talking about OFAC, we're talking about whitelists and graylists, and we're talking about, you know, can I use Tornado Cash or not? And I can't because I'm an American. I just don't know what uh, what every like what's going on here? So I feel like we need the 101 episode. So if you guys are game to do that, that's what uh, that's what we're going to try to accomplish today. Sound good? Great, absolutely. Well, let's um let's kind of start domestic uh, from sort of the U.S. perspective, if we will, and then then go international to kind of the rest of the world. But but I want to start with maybe a working definition. So I'm thinking of this episode as like a financial surveillance 101 episode, and I'm wondering if you guys could sort of describe financial surveillance. When I use that term, what does it mean to you? What is kind of happening behind the scenes? Who are some of the main agencies that hold the power? I'll throw this one to you first, Seth. Okay. Um, well, I, you know, I think, you know, for the purposes of this episode, let's, uh, you know, sort of carve out, you know, private sector or sort of corporate surveillance. Um, uh, let's, let's sort of limit the, the scope of today's conversation to uh, to government surveillance, but I, you know, I think the, uh, you know, a good working definition could be, um, you know, information that is uh, collected by uh, or uh, required to be reported to uh, the uh, the federal government or an agency thereof, uh, either by individuals or um, uh, by by service providers, intermediaries uh, that they use for uh, their everyday financial lives. So just to check that definition, Seth, I hear, I hear hearing two parts. One is the legally mandated reporting requirements, which if you don't do it, you get like something like fines and jail. And then there's additional information, which it would seem that the uh, powers that be are able to just collect by their own visual uh, mechanisms, as in like it's information that's out there and they collect that information because it's available for them to collect. So that's two types of data. I mean, you know, Mike, I'd be curious your, your thoughts on this. I think it sort of converges effectively into uh, more or less the same thing. Um, so, so maybe not a need to draw that particular distinction. Um, yeah, and I think, I, think it's a, I think it's a collective approach. It sort of, um, I think for two reasons. One is, you know, some of that will come into play, David, as, we're, as we think about challenges, including constitutional challenges, um, because courts have, have made a distinction between uh, when you put your trash out, um, have you relinquished control of it? And if somebody goes through it, they just go through with it, through it, um, versus uh, somebody coming in your house and going through your papers, which is the sort of genesis of the, the Fourth Amendment. Um, and I think, as Seth's pointing out, we're we're in a space here with with Web one, two, and now three, where there's tremendous amount that's that's in this gray area between what's public mm. and what isn't. I think even even the concept of like what's public information at this point um, is is a lot more of a fine-tuned uh, fine nuanced issue uh, including I should say like in a way that that also these same government agencies that are that are 
collecting it for various reasons. I mean, the, the mission of all of this, uh, and I think this is important, is something when, when I was at FinCEN, we would say to the, the people in, on the Hill making the laws too, sometimes without asking us first, uh, yeah. was that the primary mission is countering exploitation here. And so you have to factor into that, uh, the, the, the fact that this information out there and being collected in any form is also subject to creating greater exploitation. Uh, and that, that includes people's, you know, honeypots of people's data that gets hacked. Um, some of this recently coming up in FTX and Kroll um, coming out of the bankruptcy. Uh, and that's something that, that I think there's the policymakers and the politicians, and then there's also the, the operators out there, including at FinCEN and DOJ, who are saying, actually, we don't need more cases and more victims. Uh, so can we protect some of this too? It's partly why we brought in privacy experts and did initiatives on zero knowledge proofs and homomorphic encryption at FinCEN. So I do think it's really important that we're that we're talking about that very holistically. There's a so, lot out there. So already we're talking about FinCEN and DOJ and, and Treasury and all these kind of institutions. I want to get some working definitions on. But but while we're while we're talking about um, this this term financial surveillance, all right, let, let's just get a grasp of what sort of data is generally being collected and like when is this primarily like uh, intermediaries that are required to submit this because. Um, as a you know a citizen of the U.S., I, I don't often have to. I guess I'm not like conscious of times that I'm like filing paperwork with Treasury or FinCEN, but maybe I am through an intermediary, and I, I just don't know it. So, what sort of things are being tracked and uh, surveilled, and why? I'm happy to take the first first run at that. Uh, yeah, I think I mean so it's true. You're not, although I will say there's there's. Uh, there's legislation out there, particularly in the tax space, that that could make you a reporter, Ryan, <laughs> whether you like it or not, <laughs> and whether everyone around you likes it or not. Uh, and speaking of honeypots, like you may be collecting and reporting on others, but I think as as in a traditional stand from the from a FinCEN perspective in the Bank Secrecy Act, um, you're absolutely right. It would be intermediaries, uh, and in fact, this goes back to some of the constitutional issues that and the third party doctrine that Seth mentioned. But it's really transactional information, um, and historically, in fact, the we can talk through a little bit if you want the history of the Bank Secrecy Act. But it it, it was exactly this: it was around uh, reporting requirements, basically, uh, coming up through the '70s. Um, and basically, at the time, it was purely it was basically large cash. Um, law enforcement was seeing large cash deliveries to banks. Um, pretty sure it was organized crime, and. When they would go to a bank, the bank would say, I don't know. I don't know why um, Bugsy Siegel dropped off uh, $100 million. Uh, and so the other piece of that was that there was foreign Swiss banks uh, at the time. And so this was the foreign transactions reporting piece of it, too, um, that had Swiss bank, Swiss secrecy, uh, bank secrecy, which is where the Bank Secrecy Act comes from. Um, and so the U.S. would say, OK, well, we'll go to Switzerland where some of this money is getting sent from the bank that was brought in in cash. And they'd go to the Swiss and say, "Okay, you tell me about what's going on here." And they would say, "There's nothing we can say. There's a secret. There's bank secrecy here." And so part of it was going to the U.S. banks and saying, "We need you to collect more information." At the time, it was really just information of like who's collecting it. Um, give me their their basically their their bank opening information. Where do they live? What's their phone number? What's their um, what's their occupation? What's their source of income? That sort of thing. It evolved over time to suspicious activity reports, which is much more, I think, what, what you're thinking through, which is, okay, now a bank is making a determination. 
Seth came in the other day. He didn't just drop off a bunch of cash. He's, he's making anomalous uh, deposits that don't make sense to us. Uh, this seems suspicious. He, he said he was uh, he said he was a reporter, but he makes a million dollars a day. Um, what's going on here? And so they would file a suspicious activity report that would lay out who is it, what did he say it came from, um, and what is it that's suspicious about it. And I and I should say, like you know, back in the day, that would have been he brought in a bag of cash. Um, net, then it would evolve to checks and check numbers. Then it would evolve to trans, uh, wire transfers and the wire transfer information about every piece of that transaction, who the correspondent bank was. In the crypto space, that could be all sorts of things. What wallet address was connected, what time, uh, if, it's a, if it's a public ledger like Ethereum or Bitcoin, that might be, here's a graph of everything that that wallet touched um, historically. Uh, depending on what the platform is, they may collect the IP address, even the device identifier that Seth used to connect. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of data and metadata that could be collected in that. Can, can we, Michael, so can we go back to kind of the history here uh, with you guys to make sure I understand it? So there wasn't, and we're still domestic, so we're still talking about the U.S. and we'll expand international after this. So um, prior to like the 1970s, am I right to say there wasn't much financial surveillance and then in the ni- 1970s, is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so that's correct. And then in the 1970s, basically to kind of fight crime, maybe organized crime, you know, the mafia was sort of one, uh, one organization that was in the crosshairs. Uh, the U.S. came out with a Bank Secrecy Act, and this started sort of the, the financial surveillance uh, apparatus. And, and so this is this the reason basically for AML KYC, which is like I have to be identified before I can, like, you know, with a government ID, let's say, before I can open a bank account. And this is the reason when I go to, like, transfer money or take out a large deposit from my bank, uh, the bank teller will say, what are you doing with that? Like, how are you using that money? They ask these questions. I'm always like, why, why do you need to know this? Uh, you know, and it, it's almost couched as if, well, we want to protect you from frauds and scams. You know, maybe that's part of it. It seems like more of it is, is, is kind of this financial surveillance apparatus. So that's why I have to present an ID. That is why they are asking questions like, what are you doing with the money? And can you tell me more about, uh, the source of the funds? These are all questions. I'm, I, I know many bankless listeners have, have seen from their banks and it all, all emanated from this legislation from the the 1970s and the Bank Secrecy Act. Is that is this correct? Yeah. So it, it started. Uh, Bank Secrecy Act was enacted in, in 1970, um, and you know it, at at that time it was uh, you know a much smaller version uh, you know than it is now, uh, right? So in 1970 it had two uh, two core provisions: Title One, Title Two. Title One basically said banks have to um, record the uh, transactions of their customers. They have to keep an internal log of all the transactions their customers make. Title II said banks have to report uh, transactions over a certain size to the Treasury Department. And in 1970, that, that threshold was set at, at 10,000 US dollars. Uh, and so that created uh, one of these forms that uh, the reports get made on called a CTR, or Currency Transaction Report. Uh, importantly, the, uh, that threshold, that $10,000, uh, hasn't ever been adjusted, right? So if you, if you go back and you adjust the, the CTR threshold uh, back to, to $1970, it's the equivalent of about $79,000 today. Wow. And <laughs> what that difference. amounts, yeah, what amounts, that amounts to is, uh, you know, a gradual but constant tightening of the noose of uh, transaction reporting of 
uh, on the American people. Uh, and, you know, and so that's where it started, um, you know, but, you know, both as, as sort of Mike and, and Ryan, your, your, your comments alluded to, there's this sort of creeping nature of it where it all, it just expands, right? So first it was just the CTRs and the record keeping, you know, now it's uh, SARS or suspicious activity ports that were added in 1992, um, there was a, a a vast expansion of the scope of the types of transactions and the it, types. It, it, just really quick, SARS. So suspicious activities report is that basically incumbent on sort of the bank teller or bank employee to be like, hey, there's something fishy about this transaction, and I'm going to report it up. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. That's what that is okay. Um, and um, you know, so interesting stat on on suspicious activity reports. Um, somewhere north of two million SARS get filed with Vincent every year. Um, uh, you know, and, and again, curious for your for your insider take on this, Mike. But uh, you know, testimony uh, presented to Congress is that FinCEN reviews less than one percent of the SARS that are actually filed. Um, and you know, and and there are you know way more CTRs filed than SARS filed. So you know, most of this information goes into uh, you know basically just a government database and sits there waiting to be queried. Um, and, uh, you know, but so uh, these things keep getting added on to the BSA, right? So it, it grows over time. And there was a huge expansion in scope. B BSA, uh, Bank Secrecy uh, Act. Bank yes. Secrecy Act, yeah. Got it. Um, and so there was a big expansion in scope um, as part of the Patriot Act uh, after 9-11 uh, that added a lot of new types of information that had to be gathered and reported and uh, new intermediary types that are responsible for gathering and reporting that information. Um, and, uh, you know, to your initial question, Ryan, sort of, you know, is it, uh, you know, is it just, you know, am I self-reporting this or is it just intermediaries? The, the answer is both, right? So you're, you're self-reporting on your tax returns, but your intermediaries are also, also filing information returns with the, uh, the IRS. Um, depending on your specific situation, you could be filing, uh, what are called FBARs or sort of foreign bank account reports, um, or, um, you know, any foreign financial institution that you may have a relationship with uh, under uh, a law called FATCA is filing reports uh, on you to, to Treasury as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there's this sort of snowballing effect, this, this creep of this expansion of scope uh, of the, the, the financial surveillance regime under both sort of AML, the AML axis and the tax axis. Um, such that, you know, there, you know, sort of there used to be this presumption of, of, of innocence uh, right. And, and law enforcement agencies used to have to go, you know, get a warrant to uh, to, to uh, gather information about you. Um, and now that's no longer the case. Now it's already sitting in, uh, uh, you know, a, a FinCEN database uh, waiting to be queried, um, you know, without, uh, you know, without uh, court authorization in, in most instances. Okay, this is very helpful for me to make sense of this. So we've got the Bank Secrecy Act, and that kind of started the snowball. And then that, that the reason was, you know, the mafia and kind of money laundering and, and that kind of thing. Now, then we had the Patriot Act, right, in the in the uh, 2000s, I guess, the early 2000s, and that sort of expanded it. And I, I guess the, the idea here was um, anti-terrorism, um, for sure. That was top of mind for legislators and the American people at that time. And what this has done is, is created a kind of like, spidering creeping kind of financial surveillance apparatus this this is at least how it's felt to me that has become increasingly more encroaching i would say and you know one i guess feeling i have i don't really know how to quantify this but 
uh, it just feels like now that we've entered the 1970s, it very much was not the digital age, right? I was, we, we didn't have computers back then. So it literally was like bags full of cash or briefcases full of cash. Uh, now, of course, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, especially now, we have increasingly digitized everything. So it almost feels like once things get into digital format, these kind of financial surveillance institutions feel like, oh, we got a claim to that data. It's digital. So we might as well put it in the database. That's kind of how it's felt. But let me ask you a few more questions about kind of the Bank Secrecy Act and the institutions behind it and some of these other acronyms, okay? So um, Mike, you mentioned uh, FinCEN uh, earlier and Treasury. And th these are places, by the way, that you, you've, you've worked, so you know kind of the inner workings of these places. So who enforces Bank Secrecy Act, you know, Treasury Act? What's FinCEN? What's OFAC? What are some of these these names that that we should know if we're, if we're really trying to understand the apparatus here? Sure, yeah. And, and as um, FinCEN actually has two roles in the U.S. Uh, and, and as Seth noted too, I think it's important to note a lot of this development is is relatively recent, at least for for us older people. Uh, it's like '90s and 2000s. So you know, like the Bank Secrecy Act has been in place since since 1970, it went decades without this sort of level of expansion. Um, and it wasn't until 1990, you know, 20 years in that FinCEN was created. And to your- Wait, wait, how is, how is it created in 1990? So was there new legislation put in in 1990? Yes. There was, okay, so there's been, there have been legislative updates, I suppose, to kind of the big Banker Secrecy Act type stuff in the, in the yes. interim here. Yeah, there's been, there's been many, many uh, updates. In fact, there's a great timeline on the FinCEN web, web page that goes through sort of all of these steps. Uh, huh. But yeah, you had the Bank Secrecy Act in 70, um, in 86, it was the Enact Money Laundering Control Act. Um, I mean, money laundering itself was not even a crime you know, when the Bank Secrecy Act was developed, it was it was much more other underlying crimes that were being investigated. Money laundering was not even a crime? Uh, not at the time. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Huh. So, you know, a lot of this has been, and then there was the Anunzio Wiley Money Laundering Suspression, <laughs> Suppression Act that, that required suspicious activity uh, reporting in 1992. Like a lot of this is newer. So I think it's, I, I, it's one level set about all this is like, if you're just coming into this from a crypto perspective, you see this huge apparatus and you're like, wow, this is nuts. This has just been here since the seventies. And when is it going to change? But it hasn't, and, but it hasn't like it's grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and grown like quite, huh. quite slowly until recently, obviously the Patriot Act, um, you know, following 9-11 was sort of a huge expansion of a lot of different information collections, um, but it's continued to grow. And I, and I, and I, I also think, you know, to your question specifically about FinCEN, you know, FinCEN's role has a dual role. It's a financial intelligence unit, which is sort of the collection of information and dissemination of it. This goes to Seth's point of like, you know, managing a database. And so they're managing the database that, yes, they query and they may query sort of 1% of them, but but effectively they're they're administering the database that law enforcement is querying. So you'd, you'd want to factor that into it. And there's all sorts of uh, sort of congressional oversight and questions about which parts of law enforcement have access and how much access and, you know, because- So, so FinCEN is kind of this aggregator of financial information and it, and it serves the rest of kind of the, you know, the enforcement apparatus, I would say, like I, we might say yeah. in, in the US and it reports up through treasury. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
reports. And and then do, is Finson the organization that maintains kind of the OFAC list? No, that's OFAC. So we, we can we can we can switch to OFAC in a second. Okay. okay I'll just okay. close out Finson. So Finson yeah. uh, is the financial intelligence unit. They administer the banks the Bank Secrecy Act database, uh, which has all this information, including oversight of. I mean, it's federal, state, local law enforcement. All these people have access to querying it. Um, and so, you know, and questions will come up at times, which including things that we've said to Congress. Every time you expand this thing, remember, you may not be the ones in power next time, uh, <laughs> please. So I know it sounds great now and you'd love more information, but that that state prosecutor in Texas that's that's pulling things on on a political adversary of, that, that you think is great right now, it could very much be the New York attorney general doing it uh, to somebody that you like. And so, hmm. you know, I think there was always a constant push pull for, for at FinCEN of, okay, on the one hand, we're tasked with disseminating this information to law enforcement. On the other hand, our primary mission is protecting American people from exploitation. And that can include, to Seth's point, queries that are not appropriate. Um, and by the way, I should say, like there are foreign governments through this process called the EGMOT process, which is basically the global financial intelligence units all over the world that oh, have wow. agreements to share information when queried. Don't don't you just love that name, the Egmont Group? <laughs> yeah, yes. it's like, I mean, it sounds like one. something out of a Bond movie. Yeah, wow. yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's a whole nother can of worms that we can open another time. But I'll just say that is another piece that puts FinCEN at the center of, on the one hand, when Argentina is trying to, to crack down on corruption and, and autocratic activity by the Venezuelan government uh, on its own people and wants information, you know, FinCEN has a, has a reason to want to give that over. It's a, it's a pro-democracy issue. But the Russian financial intelligence unit can ask for information and so can the Turkish uh, financial intelligence unit on, on pro-democracy people that they think are a problem. And that's partly up to FinCEN to sort of catch, like, wait a minute, this is politically motivated. We aren't going to turn this over. Oh my God! So that um, that's all. But so so is FinCEN is the charter of FinCEN basically more domestic facing? Like it's protect- everything. It's it's yeah. just administering this database of the financial intelligence. I mean, certainly the primary connectors, anyone that has direct access to it is purely domestic. So, But the goal of it, like what is the reason for maintaining this big financial surveillance database? Like what are the kind of the policy goals or the, you know, like the stated goals? It, is it really to protect Americans from exploitation? Is it like to find, you know, mob bosses and like money laundering types of like, what, what are the stated goals for FinCEN? I, I, so I, I love that question because that's like a core piece, including at FinCEN, when legislators would say, hey, we're going to do this thing for you. And we would say, we don't want that thing <laughs> <laughs> because that's not actually our goal is not it, to your point, Ryan, like the goal is not to collect as much information on people as we possibly can that, okay. could, that could be leaked or abused. Okay. <laughs> the goal, the explicit mission, and I spent some time like reworking the mission statement, which which uh, I think it's not out yet, but but basically is countering exploitation of people. So it was organized crime that was kidnapping people, extorting people, that sort of thing. I think the the bigger expansion of post 9-11 was, was nominally, and, and I think genuinely at the time, even if there was some a meaningful overreach, but, but I think at the time was protecting uh, Americans from t- terrorism. Um, and, and that is the basis of a lot of the information sharing is like, okay, We've determined there's a the the there's a bomber that's going to blow up uh, a federal building uh, 
and, and, and we need to do something about that. And we've determined that through suspicious activity reports or, or that someone's been kidnapped and we've determined that they did a credit card transaction somewhere that showed that this was the, this was the car they rented to kidnap the person. And now we have their home address. And so you can go and you literally free somebody, that sort of thing, which, which is partly why the, the value calculus is kind of complicated on these. But, but to be clear, like the mission is not let's collect as much information as we possibly can. The mission is tailored to these risks that we're supposed to address. And I think that's partly also why FinCEN itself has done initiatives on privacy preserving technology, on digital identity. You know, like our role is the flourishing of America. It is not, we need to, we need to create a surveillance state uh, at, at all costs. And by the way, it might get exploited by all sorts of people. So I, you know, I, th I want to separate the FinCEN as the operator from like people in Congress that might be saying, oh, you need to collect all this other information because well, FinCEN's not asking for that. Well, uh, that's what's interesting is it does become this kind of like this powerful tool that can be used in all sorts of ways that maybe are kind of counter to the the goals of the, the institution, the, yeah. the stated mm -hmm. goals. Okay, Absolutely. So, in fact, I, that's it's exactly your articulation of it is perfect in exactly why we said we did a whole privacy initiative that said banks in particular, we would love it if you'd start using zero knowledge proofs and homomorphic encryption and other ways of managing <laughs> risk, because you know what, you're collecting all this information, it's getting leaked and hacked. Oh. And by the way, the amount of deep fakes that are, that are undermining your KYC process is, is, and the amount of identity fraud is sort of through the roof. So I think so far this conversation has uh, exemplified why people use the term, okay, so all of these three letter agencies. Like three letter agencies, <laughs> three letter agencies. And we, we talked about just like the, the slow tightening of the noose of financial privacy over time. And then in this decade, we had this new legislation. In that decade, we had this additional legislation. The, like the libertarian perspective on like uh, governments and nation states is that they always grow. Like they always want to grow. There's just this natural growth to them. And they'll find a way to grab a pigeonhole and then incept some sort of three letter agency or increase its scope. It seems to be that this is kind of just the pattern that we are identifying here with the growth of our like you know surveillance state. Um, would you guys accept that that pattern is like how to how to understand the growth of this whole thing? I, I think so. I mean, Seth has studied this from from globally, so I welcome his thoughts on it. My quick from the U.S. side of it is is I actually would go back to the the prior conversation where like from 1970 to 1990 plus, mm. it actually didn't grow that much. But it's, it's, you know, we're now in digitized data. There's an enormous amount that can be collected. And so you'll have folks, particularly in Congress, saying, well, wait a minute, you could collect it. Why don't you? Um, right. Yeah. So the inception of the internet was like, oh, there's so much new surface area to collect. And so maybe they weren't growing just because they didn't have a reason to or the optionality to, but the internet kind of gave them that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's probably the right catalyst. I mean, the combination in particular of of the internet and you know, really for me, smartphones is mm -hmm. is is what you know really started to balloon the the ability, uh, you know, both of corporate America and and the government to to collect and and you know analyze data on on individuals. Um, so you know, I take your point, Mike, that you know, in in many instances, FinCEN is saying, "Hey, hey, we we don't want this. Don't don't give us this data. Don't give us this power." And Congress is like, "Here, here, here, C collect this. You know, analyze this data. Uh, you know, it, the the end result for you know the average citizen is the same. You know, which is 
you know, all of this information is 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 increasingly becoming available and you know and being used, even if not you know used by FinCEN. Um, you know, once it once it goes in the pot, right? It's available for uh, you know for uh, you know a number of different uh, you know agencies to use for for whatever purpose and. You know, so in that sense, I often sort of think of, of FinCEN as, as being, you know, the, the all-seeing eye at the top of the pyramid on the back of the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. that, 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 uh, to me, that's, that's sort of the, uh, FinCEN's place. So in, some uh, people say it's, it's like the eye, the eye of Mordor, though, you know, and that, that might be a darker <laughs> yeah. view of things. But uh, yeah, I, go ahead, Mike. Let me just give a, 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 what feels like a more realistic, I would say it was like a very glamorous uh, view. I, I would say it's more like a, a coach in a, in a, um, peewee football game uh, where every parents from both sides are just yelling at you. Uh, <laughs> no one's happy. You know, nobody's happy because it's either yeah. like Congress is shoving more information at you than you even want and you've got to protect. And then and so the and then on the flip side, you have uh, other parts of Congress that are saying you have this information. You better be sharing it with everybody because you should be preventing every crime. And then you have other parts saying, mm. wait a minute, you can't share that information. That's really sensitive information. And it could be politi- politically motivated. Are you vetting every single person that's asking you for information? And we're saying, geez, that's like 300,000 people <laughs> and <laughs> and you haven't even funded us yet. Uh, so no, we're not. Uh, so it's it's actually, and I'll say like there to be very concrete about it, like there have been times where even including through the AML Act, which was another sort of recent like major update to the to the anti money to BSA, which I'm, is a whole other episode I don't want to get into. Yeah, 20, 2020. In 2020. Yes, like mm-hmm. a very substantial update to it. Uh, but in the process of that, some of it we we talked with financial institutions mm-hmm. about the threshold, raising the threshold, as as Seth mentioned. Um, and some of them, it was the it was the reverse. It was, you know what, we're happy to just give you an API and you can have all the stuff um, because we've got the infrastructure, the data is collected, and you can just have it. We don't even want to have to parse what's suspicious. And the response from us was like, that is a fucking nightmare for us. Like, <laughs> the last thing they I were want, like, you you were just like, we want some of your data, and they were like, here, have it all. Yeah, and we were like, actually, we want, fun? we don't want more of your data. Like, uh, you know, this is this is part of it. Is like, this is this is why you're the ref in a peewee game. It's mm-hmm. like you get all this information, half the country is saying, you need to use this and prevent everything and disseminate it everywhere. The other half is saying, you need to protect this and make sure nobody bad ever misuses this data. Oh, wow. Um, and on many ways, like, and I, I should say, like, to be concrete, like FinCEN twice in 2018, 2020, put out rulemaking saying, we'd like to improve the effectiveness and the prioritization of the AML system, because we think there's just a lot of over-reporting, you're just data dumping, um, and we're not, it's not clear to us that everybody's being as effective as they actually could. Like, we don't just want data dumping about people. I, I feel like we are unraveling it kind of a Gordian knot here. And, uh, you know, th- this might be a multi-episode thing to cover th- this all, but this is j- at least the, the highlights here. So we talked about FinCEN, and I guess this is this aggregator of all of this financial uh, information, maintains a database, and all of this information is being aggregated primarily, though some of it's self-reported, primarily from from intermediaries, the, the U.S. banking apparatus, let's say. Okay, what is OFAC? Let, let me ask that. So we talked about FinCEN. What about OFAC? This is another four-letter agency, uh, I suppose. What is their sphere of power? Uh, what are their stated goals? Uh, I don't know, Seth or, or Mike, which of you want to take this one? Mike, why don't you lead off on this one? Sure, sure. It, it's a, it could also be its own episode because there's a really interesting history that goes all the way back to the War of 1812. 
but the but the basic uh, concept of of OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Assets Control, the the really core of it um, started in about 1940. It was really coming out of World War II, and the reason it's foreign assets, and at the time it was foreign funds control, was actually that it was protective. So it it basically administers economic and trade sanctions against foreign actors, um, and so at the time it was the Secretary of the Treasury seeing that as the Nazi forces were occupying countries like Denmark, they were trying to repatriate assets um, and basically take the occupying country's assets. So they, they, would, they might call up the, the Fed and say, we want all the gold from Denmark because we're in charge now. And so part of this was actually, it was freezing in a protective sense. So it basically was the Secretary of the Treasury saying, we're freezing all these assets. Um, we're controlling these foreign funds that any U.S. financial institutions have control over. Um, and so that same mechanism of saying to any U.S. or U.S.-related financial institution, we've, we've listed out all these funds that you should freeze, uh, not seize, but freeze and hold um, at the time protectively over time that's evolved. Um, and there is some lineage going back to, to the War of 1812 when some of this was done as a, actual sanctions and embargoes as well. Um, but it was very protective at the time and it was blocking assets. And so that, that has sort of evolved over time, including in 1950 with the Korean War, um, and President Truman declared a national emergency and blocked actually Chinese and North Korean assets that were subject to US jurisdiction. Wow. And that's, that's much more sort of the current incarnation. In fact, North Korean assets, I think, are the, the longest held blocked assets, <laughs> I think, of any country in the world. It goes back to the, the Korean War. Um, but but the, basically, the, the authority of OFAC is to say all U.S. financial institutions and other financial institutions subject to the U.S. jurisdiction, like you might have branches here, you need to block all these assets. And, and one important piece of this that is, I think is a really important distinction from like FinCEN and, and money laundering authorities is there's this is purely a behavior change mechanism of economic statecraft. And so the idea is the assets are blocked. When you stop doing the bad stuff that you were doing that caused the national emergency, we will release these. That's your incentive to have a behavior change moment. Um, and, and we can get into the authorities, which are all under the International Economic um, Emergencies uh, Act. But, but it's basically the president declares this is a national emergency, so it can be done unilaterally by the president. National emergency, OFAC, I want you to list out all the major actors involved in like North Korea's hacking uh, uh, to fund their nuclear regime and their oppression. Same with Syria, like, you know, the Syria gasses its own people. We want you to identify who are the, who are the actors that, can, that might have a behavior change if their assets were frozen. And so with the current Russian sanctions, it's, it's not just the Russian government and, and military, it would be who Treasury has determined are, are oligarchs supporting and the, with the idea that you create pain points and then you undo it. Um, and that's why also usually they're not seized assets, although it can happen, but, but it's really a behavior change um, mechanism. And, I, and I'll give one little footnote to this that I won't go down now, but this is also why I think the tornado cash sanctions were sort of totally inappropriate as a behavior change mechanism. Um, but, but we can, I'll just footnote that. So uh, to add on that, uh, uh, you know, so so OFAC uh, is also uh, sort of an agency within the Treasury Department, uh, but um, it, it it 
differs from FinCEN a little bit in in um, the the source of its authority. Uh, you know, so we talked about how FinCEN is sort of a creature of statute, right? It was created in 1990 to oversee the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970. Uh, uh, OFAC uh, derives a lot of its uh, of, of its authority directly from um, the, the the president's executive powers over uh, foreign relations and trade in Article Two of the Constitution. Is this more like a national defense type feel, Seth? Uh, yeah, there's 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 strong overtones um, to that, um, you know, but it, it derives from uh, sort of the the uh, the president's foreign relations powers uh, in in Article Two of the Constitution, um, and so there there's also there's a similar there's a bit of a corollary um, with uh, with trade and tariffs, um, in that uh, as Michael pointed out, um, you know, o- o- OFAC and sanctions are um, you know targeted at um, you know foreign actors and foreign assets. Um, uh, as our as our tariffs on trade, um, but also similarly, it's it's actually the American consumer that pays the tariff, right? And it's the American individual or company that is at risk of civil or criminal uh, punishment for violating the sanction, right? Not the foreign actor. Um, so you know it, they're sort of directed, um, you know, uh, internationally. Um, but the the impact um, and the sort of the constraint on liberty is applied domestically. Because these intermediaries basically have this obligation to make sure that they what don't accept money from or report anyone who is on the OFAC sanction list. If you know, like, what is the actual obligation here, and what are the penalties if they you know, if, if if they fail to meet the obligation? Um. I'll just quickly start, but Mike, you're probably better suited to, to answer this question. So, so OFAC maintains a number of lists. Um, probably the most pertinent one for our conversation is the the SDN list or the Specially Designated National List, um, and uh, uh, an individual that that uh, you know the, the the president or Treasury Department feels uh, is acting. Uh, contrary to the interest of the United States, uh, can be placed on that list. This would be like and, a terrorist, a Russian oligarch, something like this, right? Roman Semenov, you know, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then once you know, once once that foreign uh, individual is placed on the SDN list, um, no U.S. citizen, U.S. business, or even foreign business with a U.S. nexus uh, can uh, transact financially with that person. Wow, and and, and uh, violations of the sanctions are strict liability, uh, meaning that the the government doesn't have to show intent. Right, you can accidentally violate sanctions, um, and, which is what we did, right? Because we had ether from Tornado Cash sent to us on others' behalf. Correct. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Cool. And you know, but there's there's some sort of uh, you know prosecutorial discretion in terms of, uh, you know, whether to charge a violation civilly or criminally, but, but under the law, it's, it's a strict violation or a strict liability, um, uh, you know, regime. So the, the government doesn't have to prove intent that you, you know, that, that you meant to transact with the designated, uh, designated national. And these penalties can be severe, can't they? Yeah, they can. I, I just, I just clarify that, that, there's a there are enforcement guidelines they are public guidelines so they can be very severe but the intentionality uh, and the amount of the transaction all are all factors in the in the sort of enforcement guidelines so 
Um, and if you look through the way the guidelines, which are, are public, are set up, if it was if there was no intent and it wasn't, uh, which by the way, receiving wouldn't be would clearly not be intent, uh, and it was like a dusting, it would it would basically literally be zero. Um, and so, you know, often those are not, not surprisingly, not an enforcement, uh, priority and, and I, not even that they just don't happen. Uh, if you look at the actual OFAC enforcements that are, and they're all public, um, uh, most have been pretty, pretty systemic major, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and, and pretty intentional based. Um, but, I, but I think it's an important point that, and certainly for criminal, it requires intent, um, for sure. Um, but I think it's a, it's an important point from Seth that that like technically it's strict liability to start the process for sure. Right. Yeah. So okay. So podcasters with public Ethereum addresses generally don't fit the mold as people going to criminal court over these things. Yeah. yeah. MetaMask portfolio is your one-stop shop to manage your crypto assets and to tap into DeFi all in one place. And the most important part of that experience, buying crypto, obviously. MetaMask Portfolio's buy feature enables you to purchase crypto easily without going through centralized exchanges. Designed with you in mind, you can fund your wallet directly in just a few clicks with convenience and simplicity. What happens when you press the buy button? Rather than being limited to a single payment provider, MetaMask brings together a bunch of vetted, trustworthy providers to present you with customized quotes for your crypto purchase. Once you've funded your wallet, you'll be able to plug into DeFi with all the money verbs like swapping, bridging, and staking. But first things first, you need skin in the game. Head over to metamask.io slash portfolio to buy crypto the easy way. Are you planning to launch a token? Is your token already live? And are you granting your employees and contractors vesting token awards? And are you trying to figure out how to take care of taxable events for your team? Toku makes implementing a global token incentive award simple. With Toku, you will get unmatched legal and tax support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. Toku will help you navigate across the life cycle of your token from easy to use pre-launch token grant award templates to managing post-cliff taxable events with payroll. For legal, finance, and HR teams, it's a huge complex task to have to comply with labor laws, payroll and tax obligations, tax reporting and crypto regulations in every country that you employ someone. It's difficult, time consuming, manual and costly, and it's drawing more attention from global regulators and governments. Toku makes it simple for leading companies in the space, Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin and many more. So if you want some help navigating the complex world of token compliance, go to toku.com bankless or click the link in the description below. You know Uniswap, it's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over one $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bankless. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap Mobile Wallet for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There's a link in the show notes. Um, uh, is there, can, can maybe you, one of you can explain the thought process behind strict liability, why that's even a thing at all? Like why we accept the concept of strict liability? Like in what use case do we enjoy the idea of strict liability? Because <laughs> to me, strict liability sounds like authoritarianism. We have the admin keys over your position to be in jail or not. And it's our way or the highway. Like that's the, the cursory take about what strict liability is maybe michael or seth maybe what's the, why do we have strict liability at all 
Well, this is this is taking me back to first year of law school. Um, you know, the, yeah, well, that's where I need the, to be. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the you know what, what comes to my mind, uh, and it's been a while since I was a first year in law school. Um, you know, the sort of the classic strict liability uh, fact pattern is dog bites, um, right? Mm, so in in, okay. in a lot of states, if your dog bites someone, um, it's strict liability, right? And okay. I, and I think that's because. Um, in, in that particular instance, it's to protect victims, um, right. because otherwise it would be almost impossible to prove that the owner of the dog intended, intended the dog to bite the right. person. Okay. Right. I and see so this. it, okay. this so is it like negligence, a, right? Right. right. This is not a, not, this is not a criminal scenario. Um, but, um, you know, it, it creates a, you know, a situation where a, a person who has been injured, um, uh, you know, can, can, can be compensated without, you know, they get to sort of skip the step of intent. Um, um, you know, that's a, you know, the dog bite case is sort of a far cry from, from right. the sanctions scenario. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't exactly know, uh, you know, what the origin of that is with respect to sanctions, Mike, I don't know if you, if you would know the history there. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, it's always sort of surprised me because I think like you going back to first year law school, it was very much the keeping a wild animal, you know, particularly in a closely mm -hmm. populated <laughs> place or storing ultra hazardous materials. Uh, like I just looked it up and one was you aren't if you're fumigating with cyanide gas, uh, that's strict liability. We don't need to improve intent. Understandable. Like, Seems you just should be doing it. I get that. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I think certainly the idea in many and certain product liability, by the way, are like that with the idea being. Oh, that's the other one. Yeah, yeah product liability. it's product liability. And for certain products, I think people have felt like, you know what, maybe maternal fetal care or something like that. Like we want you to be, we don't want to spend time fighting with you over how much you intended to do something bad. Right. You need to be so on notice because like using cyanide in a, in a, in an urban environment is so such a bad idea that we're not going to play that game. You just yeah. should, you should be really worried. Um, right. and I think, so that's the, it's, I mean, I can't even imagine the last time a law was passed that had strict liability in it. Um, but I think to that point, it's always sort of surprised me, particularly because the enforcement guidelines are actually pretty clear that, that intent is such a major factor in this, the enforcement. And so sometimes the response is like, well, but practically speaking, it's not strict liability, right. but as a public policy, it should be. I actually think, and I say this as the former head of enforcement at OFAC, it should not be strict liability. And I said this many times at the time, and there's probably an op-ed in there somewhere when I have time. Uh, but I think it actually, it doesn't make sense because practically speaking, the enforcement guidelines already make it not that, but you have this, this color over it, this cloud that people feel like, wow, this is really complicated and I could make a mistake and get in trouble. And the answer, if the answer is like, well, look at all the history of enforcement, it's never happened. And there are enforcement guidelines that say it, it won't happen. And the answer is, well, yes, but that can be adjusted tomorrow, depending mm -hmm. on the administration. I right. think that exactly. That's why yeah. it's so alarming to be like dusted from a somebody like some tornado cash ETH, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it, it's, it, it just seems sure. like that the FinCEN or uh, OFAC, it just by having strict liability, they are just giving themselves the free option which is a power taken away from citizens. Like OFAC has the option because they have the strict liability on their side. Yeah, and I don't know, and this goes to Seth's point of like where this comes from. Like, I don't know if, if OFAC asked for it or if this is what was established under IEPA, you know, like some of this could be statutory. Um, 
I, I think it's a, I, I always thought it should be changed, including when I was head of enforcement, because I thought it sort of undermined the, the messaging of it. Um, but whether they'll be able to do that, especially if it's a statutory change, because you've got to get Congress to undo things. And I, and I should say to that point, like OFAC itself for many years has wanted to undo, for instance, Cuba sanctions, um, feeling like they're ineffective. Uh, and, and because it's some of these are congressionally mandated in their statute, you actually have to have Congress do it. OFAC doesn't have the authority. Um, in fact, it was and, and there's nothing they can do about it. So I want to be careful about not always blaming OFAC when there's there's other political actors that sometimes tie their hands. And in fact, that was a huge issue in the in the thawing with Cuba because OFAC was unable to lift certain sanctions. Okay, so we we've got the we we've explained FinCEN, we've got OFAC a little bit. We, you've just described Seth and Mike kind of like the worst list to ever be on. It feels like which is the OFAC mm. SDN list. All right, this is like the ultimate shit list um, because this means not only do you not get invited to parties, you're basically uh, economically excommunicated. Like I, I, it's a terrible list to be on. Tell me about the process of getting added to this list. So who gets to decide? who's on this list, you know, surely there's some kind of like, um, rigorous process behind this. Can you describe a little bit about what it takes to get on the OFAC, uh, SDN list? Yeah, it's, I'm happy to start that just cause I spent a good bit of time on it, <laughs> but it's, uh, um, uh, no, but it's, uh, um, I mean, it's, so there's, again, like the statutory and, uh, the separation sort of separation of powers between the administrative and the legislative, there's various ways to get on the list. Um, it's, you know, Congress can pass an act like uh, that, that just says you need to put these people on the list and, and OFAC has to come up with the packages. The bulk of it is OFAC either themselves creating these what they're called designation packages that basically you take, you know, usually there's a declaration by the president of a national emergency like Syria. Um, and so you would say based on this latest gassing of its own citizens by this authoritarian dictator, OFAC, I want you to find who's responsible for this, including the, the the industrial chemical intermediaries and put them on the list. And so, and here's the standards of that. Like you are clearly involved in this. It ties to this, you know, all the standards. OFAC then works with the intelligence community and, and NGOs, frankly, as well, and human rights organizations, depending on the topic, and comes up with names. And then they have to build basically an evidentiary package um, that has separate lines of information that corroborate each other. And that's cleared by the, the chief counsel's office. Oftentimes it goes to the Department of Justice, the, the federal programs branch for review as well, sometimes main treasury. Um, but I should say, and that's a, it's a pretty rigorous process in general, although I would say like post 9-11, there was, a, there was an expediency, <laughs> I think, that, that pushed people to move very quickly. Um, and, and, but I should say there's also this sort of wild card that when the president, him or herself creates the national emergency, they can include what's called an annex, which is just the president of the United States saying, I have determined this is a national emergency. And by the way, these seven people or 27 people, uh, or entities are part of that. I'm just making that determination and they're on the list. OFAC put them on the list and get their identifiers for people. It doesn't happen a lot, and a lot of times OFAC would still be tasked with creating the package. And and to be clear, like usually those are based on somebody having done a bit of a package too. It's not it's not that arbitrary, um, but it, but that is a way that can happen quite quickly. And it's and it's uh, two things on that is just that it's very everybody has an appeals process to this, 
but I should say, particularly if the if the president personally has put you on an annex, um, you know, foreign policy and national emergency tend to be the peak of the executive branch authority, and so challenging that is not going to be an easy process. Um, it's for OFAC, it's abuse of discretion, but when the president has has unilaterally determined that you're part of a national security emergency, <laughs> um, it's it's going to be a, a high bar, which I'll just say goes to the fact that I think we should constantly remember that this is a behavior change mechanism. And so to the extent that you cannot get off the list and people do not feel like they can get off the list, it is not a, a mechanism that works. Because you can get off the list, right? Somebody you have to be able to get off the list. Otherwise, it's not a behavior change mechanism. It's punishment. Uh, and that's not the, and this, I think, Ryan, you said this earlier about FinCEN, like what's the, what's the real mission? I think that's a great question for OFAC too. The real mission is behavior change. Like the goal of OFAC is, is above all to take people off the list um, because that means it's working. You know, people have changed their behavior. Assad has stopped gassing his own people. Uh, like that's the win. The win is not, oh, we put him on forever. This is awesome. Okay. All right. So we got Finson, we got OFAC a little bit. And uh, I, I, I was hoping for kind of like to get to the international, to, but like, I, I feel like this is going to have to be another podcast entirely to actually fully unravel this whole financial surveillance apparatus. I, I wanted to get to a, a couple of quick things though, before um, we leave you guys and we kind of conclude the episode. So one is uh, Tornado Cash. Okay. So takes on this, some developers wound up on the OFAC uh, SDN list, I believe. Some open source privacy developers are turning out cash. So did a smart contract as well. There's not a person. This is like some code. So how did that happen? What happened there? This was not uh, an executive order from a president. This is not, I, I don't think, Joe Biden saying, these people in particular, go get them. Uh, it was something else. How did that happen? And what's kind of the... I guess, what's your reading of this, Mike and Seth? Actually, uh, Seth will, will have much more, I think, in, in sort of the like the legal thinking of it and the policy piece of it. I just want to give one piece of like functional, very practical, because um, this goes to your point, Ryan, of like the president didn't just say put these on the list. My take on it is actually that it, it really, it was not President Biden 100%, um, but that it really was in many ways the National Security Council going to OFAC and saying, look, we get it. Tornado Cash has been out there for a while. Everybody has sort of had strategic restraint on doing anything, but we're at like 2 billion in Lazarus DPRK funds going through there. We're getting hammered by Congress to do something on ransomware and DPRK and cyber. Um, and every time DPRK launches a missile, miss, missile, Congress comes to us at the NSC and says, why haven't you cracked down on this? And somebody points to like the money going through Tornado Cash. OFAC, do it. Um, and I can say from having been at OFAC, you get those calls all the time. It's a it's a go to the NSC, tell them why this is going to be like massive collateral impact. And we don't think it's going to be effective because we're never going to get anyone off. OFAC walks over there, gets their briefcase handed back at them and tells them to go back and do it. Um, wow. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And, and I'll say from having been in some of those meetings in other contexts, like there were times where in political situations where we said there are no U.S nexus to this that's going to feel the impact we're just putting someone on the list for messaging we think this is a very bad idea and you're undermining the integrity of the process sometimes you won those and sometimes you lost them and 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 i don't you know i have no inside baseball on this one but my feel on this one is that this is very much 
and, and I should say this, I, being at Vincent and OFAC, when Tornado Cash was very much on our radar, like everybody knew about Tornado Cash for years. Like it, Really? Of, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, it, this is their job. <laughs> I just didn't know like, how people are, uh, are moving money. And I think, you know, it was always a conversation of like, yes, it's out there. You know, it had already been... See, been, David, we thought crypto was such a niche. Uh, they're, they're talking about it everywhere. We're not, we're not that special. <laughs> you are special. You are special. Uh, um, but I think it was it was very much like, look, yes, it's happening. Like money's also getting laundered through. Well, I was going to say HSBC, but I'm not saying that because I don't want to get sued. But like, let's just say hypothetically, <laughs> some bank, some bank okay, uh, that may have had an enforcement action uh, in the past. But you know. But look, there'd be collateral impact that would be that would be way more than we would do. We don't tech, typically OFAC does not designate financial institutions or major financial movers in any form because there's just way too much collateral impact, um, which is clearly what happened here. It's pretty identifiable through chain analysis and TRM and elliptic and everybody. You can look at the cluster and see how much of it is high risk and how much isn't. You would look at that and say, uh, I think 27, 37, 17%, I think was the main one, 17%. There's no question you would look at that and say, there's no way we can designate this. If this was a bank, 17%, there's no way. Like there'd be way too much collateral impact. Um, and if it is, you'd have a, a license that would exempt most of the activity afterwards anyway, because there's too many people impacted. So my, my take in general is that this was the NSC saying, just do it, we'll figure it out. Uh, and I think that's partly why you... Then started seeing FAQs come out. You start seeing a redesignation. Um, is, so, is this the first time as well that like a smart contract or like some code has been like named? Yeah, for is sure. that unprecedented as well? Do you think that was a, totally it, unprecedented? And I'm sure that was a conversation internal to OFAC as well, right? I mean, because oh, yeah. if you guys know it, so so some this this is why this is so helpful, Mike. And I, you know, it, it's such a black box to us looking on the outside. We don't know what in the world is going on. We just see this scary stuff happening, and we have like no idea how the inner inner um inside the black box actually works but um that's why this is helpful and so so um does ofac have actual the actual i guess power to put something like a smart contract on the list or is that what we're all going to find out we're, through the legal we're process gonna find, we're gonna find out <laughs> okay right? so 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 typically uh, you know ofac can sanction sort of two 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 types of things right persons whether natural persons or legal persons, um, or their property, right? So, you know, think like the, um, you know, the Russian oligarchs mega yacht, right? You don't want them to be able to sort of sell that and, uh, you know, and, and circumvent sanctions, right? So historically, um, the two types of things that have been put on the SDN list, that's why it's called the specially designated nationals list, right? Nationals refers to a person, right? Is, is people and their stuff, uh, you know, a smart contract, uh, you know, a piece of code, right? Some, some, you know, uh, executable text is neither of those things. Um, and, you know, so it is, it, it was unprecedented. It's the first time that, you know, that, that, that has, has been added to the list and the legality of that is very much in question, um, and is, is, you know, being litigated. Um, you know, I, it's, so shortly thereafter, as I'm sure you're aware, Coin Center and, and some others, uh, you know, filed lawsuit against um, OFAC and Treasury on 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 those grounds. My co-host and, David happens to be a plaintiff in one of those lawsuits. Actually, fun fact. <laughs> awesome, awesome, thumbs up. 
Um, but um, OFAC very quickly uh, after that lawsuit, I think, realized some of the, you know, the, uh, you know the, the, well, they wanted to shore up sort of the, their legal standing in light of Coin Center's complaint. And so they actually um, sort of uh, uh, revoked and then and reissued the sanctions uh, um, uh, in this time, sort of, you know, alleging that the you know, not just the code or the smart contract, but like the whole the whole thing um, together represented uh, sort of an un, unincorporated association like, a, you know, like a, a business. So kind of like the you user know. interface, the website, the service it was hosted on all of that stuff as well. So, so that's the sort of the theory that they're they're going under now. Um, they they seem to have won at least. Um, at the uh, trial court level in um, in uh, the Van Loon case um, in uh, the Northern District of Texas, I believe. That's Preston Van um, Loon, an ETH core yeah. developer who has also been on Bankless, by the way. So it's all very, very small world here. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I expect and, and hope that, um, uh, you know, that that has appealed. Um, the, the Coin Center case is progressing in uh, in Florida, so a different circuit. Um, which which gives uh, you know a few a few bites at the apple, um, in, in in terms of you know how how this gets decided, um, you know. But uh, you know I think you know we're in sort of uncharted waters here. Whether you know OFAC can do this, you know I, I think the um, uh, you know some you know some reason for um, uh, caution is you know is what what. You know, sort of, we led with uh, when discussing OFAC, which was uh, the broad uh, constitutional powers under which OFAC operates, originating from from Article Two of the Constitution. Right. So this is, you know, this is sort of a, a different set of rules than, um, you know, a, a typical, you know, agency action that's governed by the Administrators Administrative Procedures Act, for example. Yeah, that's what this is. That's why all of this is uh, is so difficult. It it feels like. Um... Hmm. It, it it almost feels like um OFAC's arm, its power could be almost like indefinite, right? It's it's just it can do what it, I mean, unless sort of the social layer, unless the the citizens and the population kind of say, and even, you know, those inside the government say, Hey, hold on, what are we doing? We're losing sight of the big picture. Remember what OFAC was originally for back to the nineteen forties when we were fighting Nazis and that sort of thing, right? And like, hold on, it's we've gone too far. Now we have open source developers and smart contract code. And are we sure that that is the type of society that we're trying to build? Unless we stop it at some point, it seems uh, certain that this kind of octopus of financial surveillance will have all sorts of unintended consequences and continue to consume our institutions and uh, citizens of this country. And not that this country, we're talking about the US, but we haven't even gotten to international. It sounds like that's another podcast, but it does sound like from what you alluded to and another agency, I, I, I don't even remember at this point, Mike, that, that you mentioned that they're all tied into this too. So not only do we do this kind of domestically across the US, but FinCEN and OFAC talk to their counterparts across other countries, it's all completely coordinated into this global uh, you know, surveillance network. I, I want to, as we end this, maybe maybe zoom out here, right? And, and ask the question, what do we do about this? All right, we got the tactical, like, you know, we're fighting f- fights in the court system, that sort of thing. But it seems to be the case that um, just like blatantly, bla- blatant, we don't have 
the uh, civil civil liberties in place at the constitutional level that are protecting us adequately for this type of thing. This seems to be almost, I don't know, maybe it is in there in some of the language. You guys can interpret that. But like, it seems to be beyond what the what the founders actually could conceive of, like when they originally framed this whole thing, right? The, the idea of financial surveillance at this level, the, the ability to freeze an account in this way, the digitization, this goes back to a theme we talk about often on Bankless, where it feels like we've entered in the 21st century, this whole digitization of everything and our digital rights aren't in place. Like there is no digital bill of rights here that kind of gives us encryption uh, or, you know, property rights in, you know, in some way and enshrines that into our, our governance apparatus. So I guess my, my high level question is, what do we do about this? How do we stop it? Like, is this going to require, I don't know, big movements uh, from our institutions? Do you feel like we have adequate protections in place in our in our legal system to preserve some rights that that we as a democratic republic actually want to preserve going in the 21st century. I mean, I'll throw this to Mike. And by the way, Mike, I, I've really appreciated your insight here. I didn't realize how like FinCEN and OFAC mm -hmm. and all of the institutions that, that you've previously served. And now you're going to crypto, which is, I don't know if they see that as the dark side, but like, welcome. It's great to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Like we need people like you, um, you know, fighting for these things Absolutely. in space. But let me, let me throw it to Mike first and then we'll get Seth and we'll tie this all off. Yeah, no, thanks. And, and uh, yeah, and Seth will be far more eloquent about this because he's doing this all the time. Uh, like he is engaging with like the entire world. I'm just dealing with the U.S. mainly. Um, so that's partly why I'm thrilled for that and and, and for a whole episode on, on how he's solving FATF. Uh, <laughs> oh, FATF. I wish I, I, wish I could claim that okay. just in time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think it is. I think if there's anything to leave from, from this from my perspective is that like there are a lot of folks within OFAC and FinCEN even that, that really do believe that to the mission of countering exploitation and providing opportunity and democratization of, of the ability for people to flourish that like in many ways Web3 and crypto is, a, is an answer. It's partly why I left being the acting director of FinCEN to go in-house at Espresso Systems, you know, building a decentralized sequencer and, and decentralized private computation was wow. actually here's someone here's a here's a group building a solution which is resilience. Um, it's configurable privacy. It's helping people have the personal sovereignty, which was literally the founding of this country. Um, and so I think I think there is a great opportunity here if we can get to the people that we need to in time, which I think. Part of what's helpful about doing this podcast about these actors is it's not it's yes it's Vincent and OFAC it's helping it's helping uh, educate them stuff that like Seth's doing all the time all around the world is like educating people on how the tech actually works because um, they're just seeing headlines about Sam Bankman Freed and Do Kwan um, and that's partly why when I was at Vincent we brought in core developers from from Zcash and Dash and and all kinds of folks to talk to people and get aligned of like, hey, if you're worried about exploitation of people, let me tell you about privacy technology, <laughs> you know? Uh, like this is, there's a great opportunity for alignment here. Like to the extent that it's about democracy and preventing authoritarians, which is very much, you could be describing the North Korea program from OFAC, or you could be describing what crypto's doing with democratizing finance and creating greater re resilience. Like there's opportunity for alignment, but it has to be engaging with, all these policymakers, it's not just, it's yes, it's Vincent and OFAC and including, by the way, arming the people in there with the talking points who, who do want to fight against Mnuchin's wallets rule and stuff like that. 
but it's also going to the Hill because there are politicians coming up with bills every day that FinCEN and OFAC are not asking for, um, but they have limited ability to push back on those. And I assure you that there are entrenched incumbents that have an interest in keeping intermediaries in the space uh, that are extremely organized and, and out there doing that, that sort of advocacy. And I think that's an important piece of it is, is keeping organized on this uh, in the way and spreading the word in the way you guys are doing um, and the way Seth's out there educating people all around the world, because it, it's really, it's, it's everybody to hear, look, this is not just about risk. This is about all the opportunity here to prevent exploitation. And, and it all goes back to Ryan, your earlier question of like, well, what's the mission here? And I think like there has to be, we have to be able to get to the point where there is great alignment on the fact that web three is about countering exploitation, empowering people with personal sovereignty to flourish. And how can that not possibly align with United States sort of mission? Thank you. Well Excellently said. well said. Yeah, yeah. Mike, S Seth, what what do you think? Uh, do we get a shot at this? How how can we win here? You know, I you know I I'm uh, you know I, I'm not super optimistic. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think just because you know the you know these you know it, you know it's like you know turning a cruise ship or an aircraft carrier, right? The you know this uh, the structure the the global AML regime has been built up, you know piece by piece, year after year for a very long time. Um, and it's become it's become very big and a very big part of, you know, not just the U.S. government, but, uh, you know, many governments around the world. And I think, you know, I, I hope we do do another episode on sort of international, um, you know, and we take a look at sort of the global AML regime, uh, you know, and try to put some you know, uh, some, some, some evidence to, to the argument. Just sneak peek like, let's, for that let's... though, Seth, is it, is it worse outside the U S or just as bad? Uh, Any some, better? some better, some better, some worse. All right. All, um, right. All right. You know, but you know, but let's, let's, let's take a look at the numbers and see what the numbers say on, you know, how this system is performing. Um, and you know, and whether it's, it's justifying the cost, um, you know, but anyway, because it's become so big and it's existed for so long, it, it uh, you know, it's not easy to change. And, uh, you know, to, you know, Ryan, to some of the points that you made to sort of tee up this, this question, going back to sort of the intent of the framers of the Constitution, um, you know, unfortunately, I think one of the sort of the gravest omissions of the founders was the failure to include an explicit right to privacy in the Bill of Rights. Agreed. <laughs> um, and, and so because of that, the Supreme Court has had to sort of cobble together a right to privacy um, under a, a theory called, you know, penumbra, um, where they sort of look at, you know, the other enumerated rights and say, well, in order to really have or execute um, that right, you have to have privacy in this area. Like, and like the right in this to, area. to right. you know, privacy uh, is implied, but not made explicit. Yeah. And we needed the courts to tell that story. Right. Exactly. So there's a, there's a 1965 case called Griswold v. Connecticut that the, the court explicitly found uh, for the first time a, a, a fundamental right to privacy under the constitution. Um, you know, but even, even still um, these penumbra rights don't sort of have the same level of protection that the enumerated rights do. Uh, right. So they called it a fundamental right, but fundamental rights in, in other contexts uh, enjoy strict, uh, a, a standard of review by the court called strict scrutiny, um, which means that the, um, you know, any government infringement of that right uh, must be narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling state interest. Uh, you know, I, I don't think the, the BSA at this point, uh, particularly the enlargement after uh, the Patriot Act, 
meets that standard. Um, but uh, because it's not an explicit enumerated right in, in the Constitution, uh, it's it's very difficult to challenge. And right. so I think, you know, to your question of, you know, how do we win or can we win, um, you know, I, I, you know, short of, uh, you know, the Supreme Court's uh, overturning or significantly limiting uh, the, the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, perhaps by doing away with uh, sort of the, the third party doctrine that props up the whole House of Cards. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, that, that's the only way that I sort of see that we win here. Um, you know, and I think as we digitize everything and Web3 sort of, uh, you know, slowly gains adoption, you know, we have the opportunity to say, look, hey, there is a different way. There's a better way to do all of this stuff. But it comes down to trust, right? How much trust uh, does, uh, you know, does the, the government want to have in the people, right? And the current system is one of almost no trust, right? That's why, you have to file all this information and why they don't even trust you to file the information. So they gather it from the intermediaries that you use. Right. And, and so in this the, the sort of the current, uh, you know, state of financial surveillance that we're in is one where the government really doesn't trust the citizens. Uh, and we have this now sort of presumption of guilt rather than presumption of innocence. Right. All this information is going to be available to law enforcement um, and, uh, you know, if it's ever in question, you know, you now have to prove that that, that you're innocent, uh, you know, which is a complete sort of turning on its head the, the the system that the framers set out. You know, so we we've gone very far astray, I'm afraid, and I think it would take something very, uh, you know, very significant to, uh, you know, to have a reset or sort of right the ship at this point. Well, well, let's uh, let's maybe end with that. If if we have any shot at a uh, reset here, um, I think it's got to come in the form of crypto. Um, like this is kind of, I, I mean, you guys were mentioning that, Hey, you know, the, this whole expansion of the bank secrecy act and, and FinCEN that, that happened in the nineties. I don't remember a time when it didn't exist. And that's part of the problem is the population doesn't remember a time where this financial surveillance apparatus wasn't set up. And yet with crypto, it's off by default and somebody has to come in and turn it back on. And I think crypto, this this level of responsibility with with private keys, this focus on encryption, um, this power of cryptography, I think this will reignite the conversation, especially when we see things happening like open source developers getting thrown in prison, right? Uh, that starts to, I hope, make society question where we're actually going with this financial sur um, surveillance apparatus. And uh, I do hope there is a time, I tweeted this out recently, it's like, I wish Americans cared as much about um, cryptography as they do guns. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wish we had a right to bear arms, second amendment for encryption rights and for privacy. And we don't right now, but maybe now is the opportunity to, uh, to get this into social awareness. So that's what we're going to try to do because what other alternative do we have? Honestly, guys, uh, Seth and Mike, I think we're going to have to have you on for an episode two at some point in the future, if you're willing to talk about kind of the international apparatus here. And there are a million things we didn't touch today, but this has been a great primer. And I, I want to thank you both for your time today. This has been fabulous. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thanks for putting Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having us. Wow, what an episode. Guys, risks and disclaimers, got to end with this. Of course, crypto is risky. Uh, you could lose what you put in. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.